Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name's John, and with me is Steve. How are you doing? Um, I'm feeling the pinch, John. Everything's more expensive now, or is it? I don't even know anymore. It is. It is. It absolutely is. By the objective measure measure of the uh, CPI, at least nationally, uh, 9.1% in June, which is uh, a huge increase. Uh, but I guess with all that money out there, it's bound to happen. It's not to happen. It's supposed to be the largest, the largest spike in forty years. But honest, uh, but randomly or honestly, I actually don't feel like it's as high as it is now. Maybe I'm just used to it. Maybe it's just a matter of perception and adjusting what you'll pay for things. But I feel like I'm kind of used to, to that to this new normal of everything being super expensive now. Well, I guess when you have Steve money, I mean, a couple of bucks here and well, there. You know, sure. the private jet uh, <laughs> costs a little bit more. The fuel, uh, the yacht trips. I mean, yeah, I guess. Uh, from, from the, the top, the view from the top is a little bit different than the rest of us. Sure, sure, sure. But there's actually, the, there, there's an argument that a lot of what happens in the economy is driven not by actual hard metrics and numbers, but, but actually perception and how, how people feel about things. It's right, the same way right. in which- That's a big thing. In in which, in, uh, yeah, in economics, they, they teach that, especially with inflation, right? Ex- exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a high number, but I think that we've both sort of grown accustomed to it. I know that the markets reacted um, rather drastically and they continue to, to, to do so. Um, but it, it, it doesn't strike me personally as, as a massive thing now. Yeah. Well, yeah, good for you. <laughs> well, I, I guess, I guess. Um, since we don't have a, a long driving commute, um, a lot of it is in food and energy because without that, it's only 5.9%, which is still very high compared to the past uh, few decades, actually. Uh, but uh, it's even worse for yeah, food and energy. Um, so I guess you're not eating or or driving as much. You're you're not going to be able to tell. As, I, I'm, well, I'm I, not driving I think as everybody much. can feel it when they fill the the gas tank at some point. Well, that that yeah, but I, I'm I'm definitely walking a lot more. So maybe maybe my, my behavior has changed in a way that I feel, I feel less affected. I definitely walk more now, and ride my bike locally a lot a lot more. All right, the Gandhi method of uh, the, avoiding the inflation: method. just don't own anything, don't buy anything, and you won't <laughs> feel it. I guess. That's yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, on the flip side of that, of course, um, if we know about discounted cash flows, uh, valuations start to get uh, punished, and, and that this is uh, uh, a related item with uh, uh, techs and and fintechs. Um, they get punished on their valuations, and and we've certainly seen that. So it's it's all, it's all tied together, Steve. It's all one big connected world. It's all one big web, baby. One big web. Now, let's get to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about with uh, valuations and investing. Uh, Ryan Falvey, the managing partner at Financial Venture Studio, is here with us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to participate. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, uh, so has uh, has this inflation, since we're on the topic already, uh, gone into your your evaluations, your your thoughts on what you're looking at? Or maybe companies that uh, uh, address uh, inflation and cost of living directly. Well, I think you you know you kind of hit it on the head there, John, with with kind of how oh, how it impacts valuations as, as far as you know. We we've obviously seen you know stock prices go down quite a bit over the last couple of months, and, and in particular, you know you know small tech stocks, which are, are probably the best approximation of you know the you know, private market uh, tech stocks which is where, where we invest and so yeah I think the reset in valuations is there is the area where we've obviously seen the most impact within our portfolio uh, 
inflate the impact of inflation within the companies and not really i'd say it's a little kind of early to tell um and then you know you had a little bit of a i don't want to say like a a recession um but you've certainly had a bit of a retrenchment in the job market in tech companies and and you know that labor cost is kind of the main cost these companies have so if they're you know uh, shedding this labor or if you know there isn't as much pressure on wages upwards then then it, it tends to be pretty muted within the company but certainly the valuation piece is uh is where we've seen it now you're always looking for opportunities uh do some of these layoffs like uh, coinbase and that's what 18 percent uh, of people getting laid off and and a lot of other uh well fintechs uh, specifically not, not so much the big tech companies um, do you see opportunities in, in, in terms of uh, making it easier to acquire talent or people starting, maybe even starting their own companies after leaving? Well, you, that's where you, that's what's most exciting for us. That second one, people leaving and starting their own companies. You know, we are very early stage fintech investors. So we try to be, our goal is to be you know, the first money in the companies. We want to be there, you know, right when a founder is starting their business, we want to be alongside them and, and helping to connect them to, to our network across financial services and, and to bring them the expertise and, um, and knowledge that we've been able to gain um, you know, over the last you know, several decades of working in this industry. And so when the main thing that we look for are our founders and prospective founders. And so when you do see larger companies laying off staff, undoubtedly talented people, um, that tends to make people kind of reconsider what they're doing. And, you know, when they, when they see that the value of their stock options might not be what they thought it was, it makes them a little more willing to go out there and kind of stake it on their own. And so I would expect, and certainly we're expecting to see a lot more uh, starts of companies over the course of the next, you know, you know year or so. Um, it's a more challenging environment to start a company and from just raising money. But um, in many ways, it's less challenging because, you know, it's a little bit easier to hire people. It might be easier to talk to that really talented engineer to, to jumping ship with you. Um, it's easier to bring in more experienced labor um, who, who might not be as comfortable in, in, their, in their existing job as they were before. And, you know, if you're acquiring customers and, and the bigger companies are kind of dialing back their advertising spending and maybe not put as much focus on marketing, that, that can tend to create some gaps in the market. And so... Uh, you know, these recessions tend to be a great time to start a company. And so that's something that we're, we're very acutely aware of. Yeah, it's like that old saw about, uh, yeah, a, a lot of uh, successful companies starting in the downturn and then uh, ramping up when things get better. Um, so what's the appeal of going with a financial venture studio? What's, what's the value add you guys bring uh, to, the, to, to a company that you're working with? How does what you offer di differ from, say, an incubator or an accelerator or just a plain VC? Yeah, no, the, both, both great questions. I, I, the, the, what we are is we're, we're you know, very basically purpose-built to support founders who are starting fintech companies. And the way I kind of remember is you think about, you know, financial services is, is this, inc I mean, it's an incredibly profitable industry. It accounts for a huge percentage of global profits. The United States financial services industry is a particularly profitable chunk of that and, and it generates a lot of revenue, but it's also an industry that's very closed off. You kind of need to know how to speak the language of banking or insurance or payments to, 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 to make inroads. It's regulated, that regulatory complexity, you know, it's, it's not quite like the taxi agencies that, like, you know, that, that Uber had to deal with, you know, the regulators in banking will, will put you in jail and then kind of <laughs> seize your company if you, if you, if you run afoul of the rules. And so it requires a lot more sophistication in how you operate at the very earliest stages. 
And the challenge is, is many of the best founders, and they come from technical backgrounds, they're great at seeing problems, and they, they just don't have those networks. They don't have that knowledge. And there's, there's nothing particularly mysterious about it. It just requires you know, someone to help you kind of navigate that industry. And so what we do is partner with the founders at the earliest stage. And then through a very structured process, we essentially run a, a six-month you know, program after we invest so that, to your question, uh, Steve, you know, that's one area we distinguish. We invest first and then we work with our companies um, and we try to connect them to that broader financial services ecosystem. And we see that as being potential partners, banks, insurance companies, payments companies, could be larger fintech companies, and helping our founders kind of navigate those early relationships. We help connect from the downstream investors. For the most part, we assume that all of our successful businesses are going to have to raise a lot of money and we want to get them in the stream of capital where that's possible. Um, and then, you know, if they're touching a regulated part of the industry, it's good to build those relationships in early stage since we have, we have a way of doing that. And then we're working very intensively with them. So usually we're talking to them at least every couple of weeks at a minimum, frequently it's wow. almost a daily basis and trying to be the most engaged, helpful, active investor in that company for the first six, 12 months after we invest. And then we'll provide additional capital to continue scaling with them. Uh, up into the Series A, and so you know, by the Series A, we tend to kind of ratchet back our our investing, um, and you know, hopefully, if we, if we put the company in good hands with downstream investors, and we'll um, we'll kind of go on to that that next kind of crop of really early stage companies. So, you know, our goal is to be the most helpful, engaged investor to a founder at the earliest stages, and really try to supercharge their growth and open up doors. And what we've seen is the best founders take advantage of that and just race through those those, those openings. Amazing. And you play exclusively in the fintech space. What are sort of some of the trends that you have seen in terms of consumer and enterprise fintech and, and, and the ones that, that you think would be more attractive as an investment opportunity? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Surprisingly a difficult one for <laughs> to answer. So one thing that kind of makes us unique, just because we're so early, is we tend to really follow where the founder energy is. You know, we found in the past, we've, we've been put together thought pieces that we thought were really well-written and really smart, and identified all these huge opportunities in the market. And then, you know, we'd encounter a founder six months later and do some really interesting, like, hey, how come you didn't reach out? Like, this is what we do. And like, oh, I, I read the blog post you wrote. And you didn't mention that you're looking for what I was doing. So I didn't think you were interested. And so we tend to be pretty hands off and really want to meet founders kind of wherever they're at. You know, that said, um, I, I think we, we still have, you know, obviously there was a lot of energy around crypto earlier this year. There is yep. some real innovation happening in that part of the market. Um, I think mm -hmm. in a way that we have not seen prior to this. And I, I don't think it's going to be as flash in the pan as some of these previous, you know, crypto kind of goes up and goes down. And, and I expect we'll see some real meaningful businesses get created there over the next couple of years. And so we're focused on that. You know, small business continues to, financial services continues to be pretty miserable experience for anyone who runs a small business. And so there's a lot of opportunities to improve. And on the consumer side, you know, frankly, you know, there, there's been a lot of innovation, but, you know, banking and insurance, financial services for the average consumer in this country is, is a miserable experience, has a lot of fees, products aren't really well suited for modern lifestyles. And, you know, every day we meet founders who are coming up with new ways of thinking about, you know, payments and holding money and loans and deposits. And, and, and I, I really think there's a lot of limited possibility in all three of those categories. To double click on uh, on the crypto space, I know that there's been tremendous, there's been sort of an outpouring of schadenfreude, right? In terms of people mm -hmm. 
gleefully rejoicing at the fact that all these fintechs have, uh, all these uh, crypto companies have gone belly up. Um, what, what do you think will be the catalyst to transform the industry from this very frothy, very bubbly, very honestly filled with fraud, fraud and scams into something that's more resonant for consumers and for enterprises? It, it seems like a lot of the, the cloak of industry has been revealed and there's just a lot of, there's a nasty underbelly in, in all of this. So what, what, what applications do you think will actually be helpful in, in getting us to that next stage in crypto adoption, adoption which will be presumably, again, more, more customer use, actual use cases and more value created as opposed to just replacing existing frameworks with new ones? Boy, I mean, I, I can't tell you. I know the answer to that one. In 30 uh, seconds um, or less. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's going to be, it's use cases. Right. Like I think the problem and real use cases that actually solve problems, like people talk about the problems that crypto can solve. It certainly has a benefit in making payments a lot cheaper. I think it has a problem of, you know, ironically, given some of the problems we've seen with, you know, Three Arrows Capital and Terra. And, and Voyager and Circle. Yeah, I mean, it was an extreme yeah. under, understatement of the word problem. But, um, you know, I Ironically, crypto and NFTs and some of these protocols are actually really good at getting rid of one of the major risks in the financial service industry, which is counterparty risk. Um, and you know, given the, I mean, I think that's just a fact of how much is blown up, and frankly, like how much money was lost, and the fact that you still have, you know, you still have people that have something. I mean, it goes to show that there there, there are elements of the crypto economy that are actually and I, I almost don't want to say it but like kind of safer than the traditional economy um you can only really? lose as much as you have like if the crypto economy is worth three trillion dollars it can only lose three trillion dollars that is not how the banking industry works you know if the banking industry's total value is three trillion dollars it can lose a lot more than three trillion dollars um and and i i think that there's there I think there's some kind of elements of you know NFTs and some of these decentralized you know protocols, you know, not the lending stuff, but you know, where there's just say these pure kind of swaps that that actually do make do do actually represent an improvement over the industry and kind of lower the cost for more complex financial transactions. Um, and then I think I think well, you know, as the, I think the market structure is going to fragment and change a bit. And so some of the areas like you know, NFTs right now, the really the best use case is to buy something in hopes that COPA goes way up, you know, all uh, board eight. But a lot of that has to do with how expensive it is to transact in NFTs. So if you could do it, you could buy an NFT for 20 cents and you could sell it for 20 cents. You'd have a lot more use cases of NFTs in the 20 to $30, $40 range. Uh, whereas right now you really don't have any just because it costs, you know, $20 to buy one and $20 to sell one. And so I, I think as you get more infrastructure there and, and like, you know, for this next wave of building, we might, we might see, we might start to see some crossover where you have some real life applicability, but yeah, you are right. that I think, you know, it, it tends to get, to get pretty greedy, pretty fast and turn into like a speculative gambling slash fraud cesspool. There's a lot of areas that have gotten uh, just so much in investment um, besides uh, blockchain and uh, uh, crypto exchanges, um, things that have uh, really fleshed out in, in, uh, into a lot of niche areas like um, uh, affiliation banking services, um, uh, you know, certain uh, commercial uh, kind of um, uh, uh, lending for very specific areas, the creator economy. 
Um, do you think that uh, the market can support all these, all of these just different niche areas? And do they, do they really bring a lot of value to, to those? Uh, are, are they big enough to, to support a, a company going forward? You know, that's, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a criticism, I think, that, 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 is, that is kind of often levied at some of these businesses. You know, the reality is there's, you know, there's about 6,000 regulated banks in this country. There's another five or 6,000 know, credit unions and other kind of, you know, other types of depository institutions um, across. So that's, that's a lot of financial institutions. And I, I think you'd really struggle to, to look at, you know, the, the, the checking account product at Bank of America and compare it to the Wells Fargo checking account or, you know, the Bank of, of you know, South San Francisco's checking account and tell me there's a distinction between those products. Um, and I think if you looked at a lot of bank business models, you know, they're, they're pretty generic. Um, and most of what has distinguished financial services competition in this country for, I don't know, like say the last 200 years has really been where you are. And so if I got a charter to, to run a bank or a license to run an insurance company in, in a small town, um, it was pretty lucrative for me to offer the financial services in that small town. And I could kind of offer everybody the same product because what I was really competing was over geography. And I think what we've seen over the last, you know, the last you know, decade and a half, and, and it really is kind of, you know, post the explosion of the, of, of the app stores. And uh, I also think, you know, post financial crisis where there's, where there's been a little more like regulatory, there's been a lot more regulatory um, scrutiny on also larger financial institutions is new companies pop up. And for really the first time in American financial services history, you can launch a product of national scale on day one. And that means you can serve a very specific audience with a use case rather than rely on your geographic um, you know, oligopoly, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, we have a company in our portfolio called Daylight, which is a which is a which is a neo bank for LGBTQ uh, plus populations. And so they they really they really target you know people who who are queer or identify as queer. And you know, prior to the advent of the internet, you know, maybe you could you could have pulled that off in you know, two or three communities in this country. Um, it'd be a pretty small financial institution. Um, it'd be, it'd be operating in, in, in a, in a really small kind of branch footprint, you'd have a really difficult time standing out, the cost of capital would be really high, and, but it'd be pretty limited. But if you could roll that comp- that product out for the internet and target all 30 million Americans who, who identify as one of those groups, that's all of a sudden a pretty significant population. You know, that's, that's half the number of customers of, of one of the big four banks in this country. And so while it sounds like, hey, it's a niche product, why would, why would, you know, why would that group of people need their own banking product? Yeah, the reality is, it's, I don't know, they might want one. There's probably specific use cases in that community that lead them to have you know, really specific needs. And, and sure enough, that, that company, um, Daylight, has you know, some really interesting features. It allows you to kind of pick your own name, identify really on how, how, much, how much identity you want to have associated with the product. Um, and, and some things that really, and, you know, community-based features that really resonate with people in that community who might want to connect with others. And, and, and they've, they've done really well. They're growing really fast. And so I think it's a great example of how you know, a niche product can really transcend and, and might have really huge opportunity. And, you know, where we sit, you know, it requires sometimes, you know, you know, kind of, kind of take a leap of belief in, in these founders' visions. And, 
you know, you'd be surprised. Some of these, some of these kind of niche groups can be, can be pretty significant. I have Square started off with a dongle for, you know, food trucks. And I mean, I remember that obviously yeah. it turned out to be a pretty big niche. That's a big dongle now. Yeah. A lot, a lot <laughs> on that dongle. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I, I, I see these, uh, like there's a, uh, uh, Products also focused on the uh, Latino market or for women only. Uh, well, not for women only, but uh, focused on on the needs uh, in in different categories. And um, you know, just someone not uh, in that world. Uh, sometimes I wonder well, what's the what's the added value. Um, and, and you're saying if you cut it that way, the the market will tell you first of all. And 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 there are some things that that are meaningful for. Uh, each individual group. Yeah, and sometimes you have an advantage on distribution. The reason that many of these, you know, that, that banks were licensed at like a local level or a state level is because it allowed them to distribute kind of where they could kind of have people meet them physically. And if you no longer really need to do that, it opens up some pretty significant markets. And, and there are new ways of acquiring customers here that are pretty creative. You know, we have a company and uh, another company portfolio called Copper, which again, another actually another, uh, another neobank, this one targets high schoolers. And what's interesting about it is they actually distribute through the high schools. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a parent and you get these packets of information to come home with you about, you know, different camps or after school activities or products and services that the, that the schools kind of you know, want people to get involved in, I'm sorry, what Copper does is, is, is just, it gets in that same flow. And so as a parent learns about what's happening at school, they, they learn about this debit card, the child's friends might be using the same card. And it gives them a significant competitive advantage as far as distribution, distributing this product. And they, they kind of become the de facto bank account for you know, tens of thousands of, 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 of high school students around the country who would otherwise be opening up bank accounts at their neighborhood branch. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like you were saying, slicing not by geography, but by, by actual needs. So when you're talking to different founders, um, what are some... Uh, I, it might be interesting to hear about some some things that are you just hear and you're like that's a deal breaker. Forget it. This is not going to work out. And, and if you have any uh, anecdotes, I, I'd love a good story. <laughs> I mean, you got to keep in mind, like, you know, un- unfortunately, like the the vast majority of founders we meet, you know, we don't we don't invest in. We talk about probably a little over a thousand companies a year. Um, we'll wow. do, you know. You know, 15 ish deals. So you know there, there's a lot, and and uh, the, the the reasons that we don't do a deal I mean, span everything from you know we don't think the team really has it to maybe don't really believe in the market to you know just aren't that helpful. I mean, frankly, that's 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 one area we really pay attention to. We're like, are we actually going to help this company? Because you know our model requires us to build a really strong relationship with the founders and you'll be able to deploy capital into those companies as they grow and scale and if we're not the most helpful investor to them like we're not gonna be able to do that i, I wouldn't want to say hey there's just like you know do's and don'ts but you know generally what what i try to do when i meet somebody is is kind of try to listen to them on their logic and I, this probably maybe i mean it might be actually might, might resonate with, with with you with you both as as you know as podcast hosts is if you're interviewing someone and asking them questions, it's a lot easier to kind of to, to just kind of suspend your own views and just try to listen to what they're saying and then see if it makes logical sense. Like, you know, push on the same, like if I say I'm gonna do X and then Y and then you know, Z, like, all right, well, tell me how X goes to Y and then goes to Z, and you don't try to interject how you think A and B might play into. And you know, the best founders 
they have, they just, there's a, there's a coherence to the logic of their business. And you're kind of willing to say, all right, well, maybe the market gets bigger. Maybe this happens. Maybe this other thing happens. Like I'll, I'll give you a pass on that kind of stuff because it seems like you have a pretty cogent plan for how this could, how this is all going to work out. And, um, and you'd be, you'd be surprised how rare that is, you know, or you probably, you guys probably wouldn't, but, um, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty rare. A, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm going to do product A and then product B, B is going to, it's going to allow me to launch product B and then I'm going to hire these other people and I'm going to raise more money and they'll launch product C and like that. That kind of multi-tiered story, you know, that that tends not to that tends not to really work very often. You have to be pretty confident to think you can do that kind of thing. You know, a founder um, is a. How much does ego play into uh, these early conversations? A lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a it's a great i mean you want to have so you want you if you're as a founder you want to have a lot of confidence you should have a lot of confidence in what you're doing um it's an incredibly lonely and terrifying journey where most people tell you you're wrong most of the time like yeah. if you've got a really interesting business, most people are like, that's stupid. That's not going to work. You should get a real job. I can't believe you quit your real job. Oh, like how much money do you make? Ha ha ha. Like it's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. not, and every, and every single problem is your fault. Like there's no one else to blame it on. Like you've got somebody who, who quits on you and they're like, oh, well, you were a bad boss. <laughs> like, well, maybe I was a bad boss. I don't know. And so like, it can be really hard. And so I do think it takes a degree of like steadfastness and confidence in what you're doing to pull it off. And the best founders are, are really are visionary where they're like, Hey, we're going to, and, and they often learn that skill. They don't like show up looking like Steve Jobs, but they show up with like a degree of confidence and, and conviction of what they're going to try to do. They're, 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 they're by and large really good at the, um, you know, there's a skill and I'm sure I, I mean, you know, as journalists, you probably encounter it. It's really annoying where like you interview somebody and they're like, well, that's not, that's, that's not really the question. The question is X and they answer their own question. Yeah. You're like, well, I actually want to answer the other question, but you just went to your talking points. And like mm -hmm. the good founders are kind of masters at that. It's like, Hey, don't look at all those other problems. Look at this. And like, go right. Look at this, look at this. And they kind of keep you focused and they're able to, they're able to kind of corral others to kind of see what they're doing and you know hopefully corral some money but at the end of the day you know the, the main job of, of a founder of, of a startup or the ceo of a startup is really to you know do two things is to recruit talent and find money and and then you know if you get enough talent you get enough money you can usually figure out product like those two things work together to solve a lot of product problems and obviously you need a business and like taken to the extreme, you do have these stories where you get like the Theranos situation where they just blow up and it's all a scam. That's but like, a, that was a lot of confidence <laughs> there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The line between confidence, you know, confidence, puffery, delusion, and, you know, psych, you know psychosis is, is a gray one. That's pretty thick. <laughs> like, right. You can, you can yeah. be careful where you are on that. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's not like a black and white. And if you don't have talent, confidence, or money, you you just start a podcast. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Always works. Easy yeah, way out. You know, you gotta be selling, you selling yourself short, man. I don't know. About that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I always think about uh, people. You know, we we talk to a lot of um, uh, founders actually, and uh, people that make a a big leap. I mean, it's it's a big risk. Uh, 
in a lot of these cases where they're going from a very steady job, you know, uh, people at Goldman, uh, at uh, Microsoft or wherever. And I always wonder, like, uh, what does your mom think? Is she okay with you leaving this uh, well-paying job and, and t- risking it all on this, uh, what looks like a flyer? Well, it's, it's probably like, like all those kids who leave law school or who leave their, you know, big law jobs to become, you know, chefs or something or find something that, that's more fulfilling, right? Fulfilling, yeah. Well, what's, yeah. Um, uh, Bill Gates, he was a sophomore at Harvard. Can you imagine if, if that was your kid, Steve? Well, no, actually, what I, are you doing? I, I, I could. I, I think that yeah. I would have actually let him drop out because he, you know, he had rich parents. He was well educated mm-hmm. and he went to Harvard. Like he already had, he was, he was already on, on, on third base. So if your kid drops out like at what, 19 from, from Harvard, I, you're, you're like, eh, no big I deal. Think, this sounds like I a think, little bit of rear view kind of. Where you, no, 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 now no, no, that no. It worked I, out. I think, I, I think there's a difference in dropping out of Stanford or Harvard when you're 19 or 20 versus dropping out of, out of a community college because you have to get a job. Mm. That, that is right? different. <laughs> right. And I think th- those two can have very different, very, very different yeah. outcomes. Um, but actually, you I can afford for you, some for you, risk tolerance. I, I, is what you you're definitely can. And you also probably have the, the backing of, of your family. They, they can step in if, if things go, go, go sideways. And if um, you get but, Ryan Falvey to back you, then you're, you're on your way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No which is a, a good segue into my, my question, next question for you, Ryan, which is at what point would you tell a founder that's maybe doing this as a, as a part-time job, what would be the catalyst for them to say, leave their secure job and become a full-time founder? Like what would push them over the edge? I'll tell you the honest truth. I would never tell someone to that. <laughs> you, you never would. No, no. I mean, we, we do have founders. We have, we have obviously talked to founders who have, who have, who are like still employed or they're like thinking about doing something. I try to be really careful to be like, Hey, like not say, Oh, quit and we'll invest. Because like, yeah. this shouldn't be something you do because it gets de-risked a little bit. Like you guys touched on something that is worthy of probably a whole series of podcasts of like the type of people that found companies. Because for the most part, you know, I, Steve, your instinct is right. The risk trade-off isn't quite as extreme as it sounds. Like if you're working yeah. at Goldman as an analyst making $220,000 a year and you quit to go to a startup for a couple of years, you're probably come back to a pretty lucrative job at like a PE fund. You can always come back. Exactly. Yes. You're, yes. you're good. You're okay. Um, you know, if you're making 65,000, you're making normal salary the average American makes in this country, which is like 65, $70,000 a year. And you're, you got a family to support and you can only go like two or three months without a salary and you're going to start a business. Like that's Wait, a quit, very do it. different yeah, not going to tell us I'm going to do that. I mean, the, the reality is the best companies, these founders are, these founders, I, the one thing that they all, you can't tell until after the fact, you know, you're a couple of years into the journey with them. And what's interesting is they all, their lack of a better word, they're kind of crazy. Like they have like, they have something, like a chip on their shoulder. They, they've got like a deeper emotional thing that they're like, they're like on a mission. And like, whatever that is, like the startup is like, becomes a vehicle for that. And they, they can't be stopped. They refuse to take no for an answer. They're just, they're just like, they're just doing it. And that's not, didn't start out that way. But there was a motivating thing that kind of got them to that place. And you kind of have to arrive there on your own, because like I said, it is a really difficult job. And most, it, it doesn't work out for the vast majority of them, right? Like, 
you know, people love doing it. Like, I think the most of our founders, like they wouldn't really want a job. Like they're not good at jobs. Like I'm not really good at jobs. Like that's why I started this. And like my business That's what my boss keeps telling me. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you're like, I don't really want to go work in a corporate environment. I'll do my own thing. I don't don't care. Um, And then like, it's like, no, no, I actually need to solve this problem. I, there is this problem and I'm going to dedicate my life to solving this problem. And sometimes those two things combine and those tend to be the best founders. And so it, it really, you know, I, I definitely would encourage people like, Hey, if you're thinking about something, give it a shot, but like, you should do what you can to try to de-risk that. You know, like I always, I would always discourage people from putting their own money in their startups. Like, I think that's a, by and large, almost at any station in life, like a bad idea. Oh, um, interesting. Oh, really? Not even at the, the very beginning? I need a couple thousand dollars or something like to do your own articles of incorporation, hire your own attorney. Um, maybe to you know, do some do some minor coding, but, you know, six figure, seven figure amounts of money. Absolutely not. Because mm-hmm. I think it, I think it does. I think it does two things. One, it delays your moment of impact with reality. So like, when you go pitch your startup, you're going to have a hundred people tell you it's a garbage idea. Right. And that process makes it a better idea. And then you go start talking to customers and like almost every customer thinks your product is going to be garbage because it is, you just created it in your garage or your like laptop. It's not very good. And so you're, you, you need all that feedback. And, and I think the fundraising environment is pretty similar. It's kind of like a talent acquisition environment. Like, if you need to go find a co-founder, like, yeah, that's really hard to find a co-founder, but that's a hell of a lot easier than starting a company because it goes public, like not even close to as complicated. And so, yeah, put in the, put in the legwork to go finding a co-founder, go spend a year, two years, three years, finding, finding the relationships you need to help you build the business. If you think you need that, you know, go spend six months doing calls with investors and trying to friends and family starting out getting $5,000, $10,000 checks, like, you know, money tends to be get money and try to kind of get it rolling. Um, because that kind of learning to you know, crawl before you walk process is, is actually pretty valuable. And, you know, that's one of the challenges you see with much more affluent people who start businesses is they're able to kind of delay some of that. And like, they'll show up and say, Hey, I put a million bucks in the business. Look, we've got, a, we've got a fully functioning product. I need some money to go to market. And you're like, why? Why do you give you money for that? I don't even know if you, no one even knows you want this thing. Like, so what? You spend your own money on it. Doesn't it have any impact on the value of the business? Be so yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. You, you gotta, you gotta kind of respond and adapt. Your only advantage as a startup is that you're small and fast. Um, and so I, I think, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think the more you get out in the market, and the market for money is the same as any other market. Um, better. So it looks like the uh, tech valuations, as we said, are are coming down just just a hair. Um, certainly, uh, fintech uh, money getting invested has uh, been declining for the past few months. Uh, so, how does that change your I- advice to companies in your portfolio? It's going to get really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Brace yourselves. Extend the runway. Yeah, you can extend it runway, extend it runway. Um, this is, I, you know, honestly, this is a very difficult market. Um, the, the valuations have come down to such a degree that you, the market's basically valuing some of these businesses as if they, as if they, as if they just will not exist. And, and I, that, is, I think, it, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I'm I'm wondering is that is it bad though? Is it is it actually is it fundamentally bad to have lower valuations? It's at some level, it's it's pretty bad, right? Like if if you're you know like the public markets, you know, like they are, you know, there's a big time gap. But like if you look at you know a public market company that's basically the same business as you, and you know it's worth let's say. Uh, I'm trying to give a good company that I, you know, I, I, a firm. I, I haven't checked their stock price today, but you know they're trading its way down. They jump the company generates hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, and so let's let's just say that it's being valued at like a multiple of like five x revenue right now. Well, that's really bad if you're an early stage startup and you're trying to raise. You know, if you maybe you got maybe you're in a buy now pay later space and you've got a million dollars of revenue. Well, like that implies that your business isn't really worth very much. And so it's hard to raise money at some level. The public market valuations go down too much. Like the venture market tends to, the math starts to stop, tends to kind of stop tying off a little bit. And so that's why you'll see, you know, it's late stage gets impacted first, and then it will go down to you know, the venture you know, series B. And, and now we're seeing corrections in the series A. Um, and so you really need that. I mean, spectacular businesses will always get funded. I think that that's kind of always the case, but you know, most businesses are not spectacular when they're Series A businesses. They're they're good. They've got a glimmer of hope. There's something interesting happening. They're, you kind of want to see what goes. We give them some more money, and those marginal businesses can end up turning out to be spectacular ones. And and the risk is if, as as you have really low valuations, it's hard for those not obviously spectacular businesses to raise money, and and some of them might might shut down. So, as a founder. You know, you're definitely the pressure to stay lean is, is greater. The pressure to control your own destiny is greater. Um, to find product market fit is greater. And so it was it was a very permissive environment for the last couple of years. And, and now it is no longer permissive. And, you know, the best founders adapt pretty quickly and they, they reset their expectations and they figure out how to make it work. But that's hard for the human brain to do, period. Um, and a lot of people just can't do it. Um and um, and this was such a fast retrenchment. I mean, people, you know, anyone who says they predicted this is like just straight up lying. I mean, there's no way they did. Um, that you know, it's hard to predict forward and say, oh, it'll be all be good in you know six months or a year. I, I tend to think it'll probably be shorter lived than 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 others. Um, and you know, we invest very very early. So frankly, like a lot of our businesses just don't work because they just don't work. And then the ones that work, like they tend to, they, you know, we've got a long time for them to kind of improve it. So we're, we're, we are continuing to invest as normal pace. We did three deals in June. We'll probably do the same number in July, just kind of based on like where we are in the pipeline with, with a handful. Um, so our pacing, uh, if anything, is accelerating a bit. We're actually seeing, as you would imagine, we're seeing a little bit more pricing power. Um, at the early stages, we're, we're seeing stronger founders. I mean, this is a market too that, like, you know, it's like, geez, man, do I really want to quit my job right now? I mean, <laughs> like, really, <laughs> you know. So the businesses that are being started tend to be started by those people in that earlier camp who are like, I, I can't focus on anything but this problem. And those people that are kind of tend to be unperturbed by by valuations, they just want to solve the problem. Yeah, they they have to do that. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I like seeing that when in a lot of different fields, like people who just have to be uh, something very risky, an actor or a singer, or, or in this case, a, a tech founder solving problems in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they couldn't totally. do anything else. Can you imagine David Bowie as a bus driver? No, I, I, I don't know. I think yeah. he, he kind of had to do that. I but, suspect uh, he didn't get in it for the money either. He's where you ch-ch-ch-change <laughs> buses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's not for the money. He, it, it's, people have to 
to do that anyway. So yeah, I, I, I could see how that, that would be a, uh, someone you'd want to invest in. Um, some, some solid advice in there. So hopefully a lot of perspective or, or people um, going through the process are, are listening. Uh, Ryan Falvey has some, some good tips in here for you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. A lot of fun. Uh, that's, uh, that is Ryan Falvey, the managing partner at Financial Venture Studio. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening. <laughs>